This is Extreme Story Man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> This is the story of the two-story man. What is up, everybody? Welcome to the Story Men Podcast, episode 192. I am J.R. Foresteros. And I am Matt Notclay Morgan Michelatis. <laughs> uh, we are the Story Men. We also blog and have some other podcasts over at NorvalRogers.com. Today, we are going to be talking about what it is like to live in a distracted age. Our guest is Alan Noble who is the editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture. We'll talk more about his interview in a minute, but first, we need to start out with some Stories of the Week. Stories of the Week! It's time for Storymen Stories of the Week! Uh, so, Matt, did you hear that scientists actually, actually, did you hear that scientists accidentally discovered an enzyme that eats plastic? I did. It's crazy. Tell us more. Uh, well, you know, as uh, with some of the greatest scientific achievements of all time, like, say, uh, Silly Putty, for instance, mm. uh, uh, scientists were doing some experiments with some other stuff, and they accidentally uh, kind of engineered an enzyme that can dissolve plastic. And that's huge because currently plastic doesn't biodegrade and will stay in the environment for hundreds if not thousands of years. Uh, so – if we have found an enzyme that breaks down plastics, uh, this could actually be a, a major um, improvement and uh, really, honestly, like a, a saving grace for our trash problem in the world. Yeah, it, it, and they're saying they think that they can use this enzyme to make plastic truly recyclable, recyclable, meaning they could take any plastic and eventually turn it back into clear plastic, removing our... Uh, need for all the fossil fuels that they usually use to make plastic, which is pretty amazing. Yeah, this is huge. This is really huge. I'm really excited to see uh, what comes of this. So anyway, I thought that was a cool story. On the flip side, in the movies, that would get loose and every plastic thing in the world would be eaten and we wouldn't have (laughs) any more. That's true. the world would fall apart because we couldn't exist without plastic, apparently. That's right. That's an interesting thing. Um, what, are we going to go back to drinking soda out of glass bottles where it's more delicious? What? That's crazy talk. I would rather take a car out in the desert and fight a bunch of people for water. Sign me up for that movie. <laughs> water in the last remaining plastic milk jugs. That's oh, going to be amazing. Um, my story of the week is, uh, as you probably know, Barbara Bush, former First Lady Barbara Bush, passed away this week. And there were a lot of articles talking about her and and, uh, her importance in the political world, as well as to her family and other things. One article that I thought was really interesting, it's called Barbara Bush, Change with Her Country. It's in the Atlantic. It's written by uh, a journalist who is gay who met Barbara Bush in 2015. So he said he was a little nervous about it because she was maybe 90 already or approaching 90 years old at that time. And he just wasn't sure what she would be like. 
And what he talked about was the really amazing way that she listens or listened to people that were around her. She would have strong opinions, but then she would listen to and be compassionate to the people around her and often change her mind on different topics, which he said is just really rare in the different uh, political figures that he's interacted with. So I thought it was a really interesting article from someone who probably disagreed with Mrs. Bush on a lot of topics. He had a lot of respect for her. I thought that was a really cool thing. Yeah, it's been really interesting to kind of watch the different commentary around uh, Bush and her legacy. Uh, You know, I was still pretty young when the Bushes left office, so I I was not really paying attention uh, to a lot of what they were doing. Uh, So, yeah, it's just been interesting to see the the conversation. Yeah. So, uh, well, our interview today is, again, uh, Dr. Alan Noble. Uh, He is uh, currently an assistant professor of English at Oklahoma Baptist University, so, you know, just up north from from me at least. Uh, He's also the co-founder and editor-in-chief of Christ and Pop Culture, and his writings have been in Christianity Today, The Atlantic, BuzzFeed, Vox, uh, and his book is called Disruptive Witness, Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. Uh, This is one of those books that I'm going to have my leadership team at church read because I think it does such a good job of getting at what it really means for the church to be a distinctive witness in our culture today. Uh, you know, so often it's like we just want to have our own music or our own schools or, or something like that. And and Alan really pushes on, I think, the ways in which the church is, is actually adopting the philosophy and the worldview of our culture and how we can try to push back against it. Yeah, it's a it's a great interview. You guys are really going to enjoy talking to, or listening, I guess, to Alan. Listening to you, us talk to Alan. You're welcome to talk back. We just we're, we're going to have a hard time hearing you. That's what Twitter's for. So yeah, re, yeah. Uh, talk to us on Twitter afterwards. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Well, let's uh, let's get over to the uh, interview with Alan. Today's episode of the Storyman is brought to you by Audible.com. Get a free audiobook download and 30-day free trial at www.audibletrial.com slash thestoryman. Over 180,000 titles to choose from for your iPhone, Android, Kindle, or MP3 player. Our guest today is author Alan Noble. Uh, Alan, welcome to Storyman. We're so glad to have you on. I'm excited to be here. That's uh, something we have I've, heard, time. I've heard many people say that when they, when they start in a show. They say, I'm you excited. Uh, yeah. Nailed it. yeah so we send out, you know, that. five or six phrases we expect our guests to say, and, they <laughs> and that's one. So we're really thankful that you used it. Good. Uh, we, one of our Storyman traditions is when we have new guests on the show, we ask them to display their geek credentials. So is there, is there anything that, that you're a geek about? Um, I once went to a Star Wars conference. <clears throat> Star uh, Wars conference? Con- uh, yeah. Um, Celebration oh. four, celebration four or five. I can't remember. Yeah, um, two thousand seven, I believe it was. Yeah. And um, did they at that, that time reveal awesome. we will have one movie a year until your grandchildren are dead? Like, is that what no, no? It was actually a pretty sad conference uh, or oh. convention. Convention. That's what it is. Not a conference. A convention. Why did I say conference? When you um, I was thinking you were going, you had gone to like an academic that conference. That would be and I was really even more impressed. Yeah, that would have been great. Gosh, man, that story's not really good now. Um, I could lie and told you and, and tell you I, I did that, but I didn't. Why was um, it sad? Because uh, there wasn't this great hope of Disney coming in and making non-terrible movies uh, yet, oh. and um, 
And so there were just a bunch of people desperate to, you know, for some exciting new narrative to take off. And I think at the time there were just rumors about the Clone Wars animated series. Um, and there were still these lingering rumors about a live action TV show, which has still yet oh, yeah. to materialize. But, you know, it was. So you're a, you're a true fan. You were there through the, the sad aughts. You were just sticking in. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I, deluded myself into thinking I like the prequels for, for quite a while. Um, <laughs> <laughs> we watched, didn't we all? Didn't we? I rewatched yeah, with I my daughter it. lately, and I was like, they're not bad. I mean, they're not terrible. There's some things to like. You didn't tell your daughter that, did you? No, you don't have to tell an eight-year-old that. They okay. like it no matter what. Yeah, that's trouble. Yeah, uh, yeah. my kids like episode one, and I just disowning them so it's it's rough <laughs> it's rough uh, uh on on the on star wars yeah uh, i i had just this is like a house of sauces made thing you edit christ and pop culture i do uh when a new star wars thing comes out do you just have like cage matches with your writers <laughs> to see who gets to write on it yeah so i mean what, what tends to happen is there'll be an announcement and then we have a private facebook group for the writers and editors and people will be like calling dibs six seven months in advance or a year in advance like i want this and sometimes we got to be like you know you need to chill because uh you have no idea what this thing is going to be like um so you have no pitch to offer so let's wait until it you know gets a little let's get a trailer before you even ask to ride on it um so definitely yeah that that's that's definitely the case I would I would imagine that just has to be uh, for for fi- any film site, but especially something like Star Wars that has so many faith allegory components. Uh, would, yeah, like I said, just just like pure chaos as far as trying to try to get to write the story. Yeah, and for I mean, for me, I don't even for the most most part, I don't even want to write on it because then I can just sort of enjoy it, and I don't have to um, I, I don't have to try to write. And, and there's so many places, so many outlets writing now that, that there's kind of this pressure to, to say something not necessarily original, but at least somewhat original. And when you're a Christian site, um, sometimes the temptation is to just kind of baptize it, slap some Jesus on top of it to make it feel like this is, you know, this is our niche. And, and we at Christ and Pop Culture don't want to be that. Um, and so it's actually it can I think it can be kind of intimidating to do well. Um, so I'm thankful not to write those articles myself. Nice. Yeah. Uh, so so your book, which is coming out this summer, uh, the title is Disruptive Witness, but the the subtitle is Speaking Truth in a Distracted Age. And yeah. we don't want to go through the whole book because we actually want our listeners to go buy it. Um, but you identify a couple of barriers uh, that keep us from a life in the spirit. And so I yeah. wonder if you could talk a little bit about endless distraction. Yeah. So uh, one of the concerns that I have, and I think actually a lot of a lot of people who are paying attention to our society today and the West, in particular America, have, is that we can be uh, distracted and entertained and engaged in some, uh, in particular technology, but not always, activity all the time from the moment we wake up to the moment we go to sleep. And I'm, I'm still guilty of this to some extent, and I'm 
developing spiritual practices uh, uh, to to address this, and and that's what I what I think we really need to do. So, for example, for for a long time, and especially when when I'm when I'm stressed, my temptation will be to get out of bed and immediately go to my phone. Right? What's going on in the world? And now, uh, and and that's a habit that I've that I've cultivated, and I know I'm not the only one who's done this. Um, so I go to my phone and I check Twitter or I check Facebook or I check, you know, New York Times, what, what's going on in the world. Um, and then while I'm getting dressed, I'm listening to music or listening to a podcast or a, an audio book, right? As I'm walking to work, I've got my earbuds in and I'm listening again to something, while I'm working, I'm constantly distracted by the work I have to do, and and uh, I'm inundated with emails and interruptions and all these sorts of things. Um, when I'm walking down the hall, I might uh, have to fight the urge to pull out my phone and check and see what's on Twitter again, um, and. And and this this sort of pattern goes on and on, so that we're filling filling every spare second. There's almost there's almost an anxiety when we're not doing something uh, at every moment of our lives. We've got to be filling it, and um, right until the time we go to bed, right? So that that there can be situations where we're we're as we're falling asleep, we're staring at our phone until it drops and hits us in the face and we wake up and do it again. <laughs> and, um, yeah. And now that, you know, with the new iPhone, I can even take my phone in the shower. So that's, that's scary. Um, cause it's somewhat water resistant. Um, <laughs> so w- what this does is I, I, I'm arguing is it, it, it creates certain cognitive barriers to belief because, um, the gospel is cognitively taxing. Um, it's not something that we can uh, th- that we can allow to, to to just exist in the back of our minds. It needs to be wrestled with. It demands things like taking evaluation of our own lives and our actions and our uh, sin. Um, it, it it demands that that we evaluate the things that we participate in. And uh, whether or not they are good and holy and true and righteous and beautiful and all these sorts of things. And that takes time. It takes brain space. And frankly, we don't have a lot of brain space in 2018. And there are entire industries built around filling up what little space that we have. So part of my book is addressing this, this problem that, that, that we are perpetually distracted um, and that creates one significant barrier to people hearing the gospel and then being convicted by it and wrestling with it and considering their own lives and, uh, and, and eventually becoming converted. So, Alan, one, uh, a question I have. So part of this is it, we elect to do this, right? Like we choose yeah. to fill every moment with these various things. Yep. So what, what is it that is frightening us away from kind of me time? Like, why do so many of us <laughs> run away from being alone with our own thoughts, our own voice, to hear what other people are thinking and saying and filling our space with? Yeah. I, I 
so one thing I want to say is, and I think this is very important, is that there's no single answer to this. There, there, I think a number of major motives that drive us to busyness and distraction. Um, because you have people, uh, um, Pascal is, is, is worried about this, um, that, that, and, and, and he argues, um, you know, he's writing hundreds of years ago and he's, he's saying that, that, that people back then had this problem of being distracted and for them, they were avoiding their own, uh, emptiness, their own, um, uh, guilt and lack of meaning, and they needed, Pascal is arguing, to spend time in contemplation, to look at themselves and evaluate themselves in order to, um, to make the proper changes. And I, and I still think that that is uh, one of the major things that, that gnaws at us, this kind of existential dread, this, this feeling that our lives don't have direction and purpose, that, um, so it might sound like that, it might sound something like, uh, I don't know if I'm a good person, I don't know if my life actually matters. Um, maybe this feeling of hollowness or emptiness that just kind of gnaws at us. So I think it can be that. Uh, I also think it can be just basic life stresses. So right now I'm in a period of intense grading. It's near the end of the semester and I'm a professor. And so when I wake up this morning, woke up this morning, I, I had a lot of anxiety because I know that my workload is intense right now. And that anxiety, and I know this about myself, makes me want to turn to Twitter and other things. And uh, sometimes I think that can be healthy because instead of in certain moments dwelling on and becoming overwhelmed with things that are sort of outside my control, I can actually think about things that are at least to some extent edifying, knowing what's going on in the world or telling jokes on Twitter, right? Um, but, but, but the danger there is we need to be very self-aware. Like why, why is it and what does it mean when I'm turning to distraction, when I am anxious? Am I addressing the source of that anxiety? Um, and for me, I, I am. I'm grading, uh, except right now. Thanks, guys. Um, so, <laughs> Wait a minute. Just saying. Um, yeah, so, you know, I, I think there are lots of, you know, lots of different reasons why we elect to turn to that. And we need to be aware that what I don't want people to do is, um, say, uh, make sort of broad statements, sweeping statements. Well, if you keep, you know, if you're on your phone all the time, you must be avoiding, um, you know, your, your own conscience or something like that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, for some people, but, but for other people, it might be just more petty life anxieties, which doesn't mean that they don't need to be addressed, but you know, it's complex. Uh, one thing that I've been fascinated by lately, and it's something that your book touches on directly, especially with regard to this question of endless distraction is how not only are we maybe somewhat spiritually prone to avoid mm. our own uh, existence and contemplating our own existence, but now technology specifically like smartphone technology and i guess maybe like just social media technology in general whether it's again on your phone or on your laptop or whatever they're actually designing their interfaces to capitalize on that right can you talk about that a little bit yeah so um and this is one of the challenges to writing my book was that i'm 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 describing a problem that 
includes personal decisions. We, as you said earlier, you know, we choose, we elect to participate in this, in these technologies and these devices, platforms. Um, but on the other hand, there are these large, huge, vast cultural, social forces, economic forces that are moving the rest of society and to some extent us along. And so this was a big challenge in writing this because I, I you know, I, I want to be able to offer some kinds of not solutions, but uh, ways of, of pushing back. But ultimately, uh, we're dealing with something that just has tremendous uh, momentum behind it. The reality is that um, the market, uh, uh, companies have economic incentives to keep us distracted. Our eyeballs, our attention, um, they are a valuable commodity uh, in, in the modern market. Um, eyeballs mean advertising, um, they mean attention, and um, that's what uh, device makers and app designers that's what a lot of them want. They want you to stay there. We've seen this with, with the evolution of Facebook from a place where you would have some conversations and then you could link to uh, a, a site and then you would go external um, to a place where Facebook has very intentionally tried to keep you on Facebook.com. So they want you to read the Washington Post uh, with a little pop-up that's still within Facebook's frame. So they want to keep you there because your attention is valuable to them. Um, app designers have all kinds of incentives to uh, get you to turn on notifications, for example, um, so that you are constantly uh, being drawn back to the device, back to a particular app. Um, I think in the book I describe tech, this sort of technology of distraction like a like a toddler constantly nagging, get me some water or pay attention to me. Look what I can do. Look what I can do. Um, nagging, uh, pulling us away. And um, there has been some in, in the last two years, three years, I've seen a number of people who've worked at Facebook and um, other places come out and say, uh, oh my gosh, what did we, what did we build this this monster. Um, this is really bad for our brains. We shouldn't have done this, um, which is nice, but um, <laughs> it doesn't seem to be making any substantial difference. I mean, because the bottom line is, until consumers uh, decide in mass or the government starts to regulate. Um, all of these companies or the companies that will replace them in competition in, in, in a free market have all their incentives to, to keep us distracted. I, I remember, scary. I remember when that, uh, you know, I think the interview you're referring to with a, a former Facebook engineer came out, but then like one of the star Wars trailers dropped right around that time. And I, I didn't read it. <laughs> so you, yeah, okay. So, kind of devil's advocate here kind of you're talking yeah. about distraction and this connection where we're constantly like like you say like a toddler constantly like i mean i've had toddlers so yeah we should get rid of those too probably just with the distraction stuff. oh my gosh but what what uh what is the problem like isn't it just a nice way to kill some time like what specifically about distraction what is it keeping us from yeah and and this is why I want to, you know, and I'm trying to avoid 
making sweeping claims because there is a right, temptation right, right. to uh, I, I can see the path I could go down where I'm just sort of saying get rid of all these things reject the smartphone and and I totally respect the arguments made by some who want to who want to go that route I mean I, I I'm not going to do that but but I but I can see it um so first, I would say I would want to acknowledge that th- that this technology is not all bad. In fact, there's a lot of wonderful things um, about being able to connect and have these conversations. We could talk all day about the problems that social media has caused. I mean, shoot, in our country, in our political life, political discourse, just in the last two years. But but it's also done a lot of really great things. I would um, not have the kind of knowledge that I have and opportunities that I've had um, if it weren't for the internet. Um, it's just open doors that just I wouldn't have before. And, and that's true for most of us. So, um, and, and I think, you know, frankly, you know, for me, for example, when I uh, sweep the floor, I love listening to an, an audiobook. That's uh, I, <laughs> when I sweep the floor of my house, that's a very satisfying way to, to do a chore. And, and honestly, um, I kind of enjoy it when I get to do that. So uh, filling space with other activities is not inherently evil or bad or destructive. What, what we're looking at here is the overall tendency to fill all of our space so that we have no time in our day for self-reflection, meditation, contemplation, and, and that also tends to include time for prayer, by the way, because it, 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 prayer requires that same sort of mental space. So um, for Christians, for people who already believe, the lack of free space in our mind to allow our imaginations to wander, to allow ourselves to reflect back on our day and consider, um, did I treat this person fairly and kindly? Uh, how could I have done this better? Um, that means that we're probably not going to be identifying and addressing besetting sin. We're just going to, we can easily just become numb to them because there's never that space for conviction to turn into action. And for, uh, for people who aren't Christian, and, and part of my concern is bearing witness to the gospel. So if, if our neighbors have no space if they're constantly being distracted and we're bearing and we're trying to share our faith with them, the the, the concern I have is uh, when is that uh, when is the conviction of the gospel, the beauty of the gospel, going to take root and flourish and uh, affect their imagination and make them evaluate their lives if they're constantly numb, if they're constantly doing other things. So so that's that's the kind of balance I want to strike. Uh, I don't, I don't know exactly how to ask this question, but, uh, in, in the book, like you talk about where you were sent, uh, and a sneak peek of a Christian cell phone game. Yeah. Um, and so I, could you, could you talk a little bit about what, why maybe in your view, the church falls so easily into just playing catch up with the culture and, I guess, you know, why aren't these spiritual practices like I grew up in a Southern Baptist church? We were never taught about meditation. Yeah. We were taught we were taught like the ABC method of prayer. It certainly wasn't this like silent, meditative, reflective kind of prayer. Like why do why do we get so caught up in that instead of being this kind of holy alternative? 
So um, the, the church is always going to be drawn toward taking its cues for success and for um, operating from the surrounding culture. Uh, that, that's always going to be a temptation. And part of that temptation comes from, from Paul saying, be all things to all people. And so there is some, a, a bit of a scriptural basis for that. The, the trick is that that always includes, that always uh, needs some discernment because um, s- some things are not uh, conducive to the gospel. Some things are not um, actually uh, work against our faith. And uh, the, the danger can be that when we adopt these practices— we unknowingly undermine the very thing that we're trying to to promote. Um, so, for example, I was sent um, a, a trailer, a, a pitch for an, an uh, iOS game and, and a, a, a smartphone game, and, and this has happened. I've actually had this happen several times, right? Um, and a, a Christian company designed this a startup and their goal was to get people to learn scripture or yeah, I mean, just generally to learn scripture by playing video games. Um, and, um, so the idea there, the desire to teach people about the Bible as good, it's a beautiful thing. That's, that's wonderful. Um, but what they're looking to, to find a, a method to effectively do that is the secular marketplace. Um, and it's not that I think the secular marketplace is inherently evil, but it does have implicit uh, biases and uh, ideas that sometimes are antithetical to, to what we believe. And one of those that concerns me greatly that I address in this book is the idea that we live in a, in, in a fundamentally secular world, a materialist world, and that our faith is not a faith of a transcendent God who is also incarnate, but um, more of a, a social club or an option that people, a lifestyle option that people have. And um, so often the church, when it's branding, quote unquote branding, when it's marketing, when it's talking about a sermon series, when it's using commercials during a, a service to advertise a new men's Bible study, when it's using you know certain kind of graphics on stage, when it's you know in its church signs and its logos, it's uh, adopting the branding and marketing strategies of a marketplace where everything is flattened into an option. And if Christianity is true, then it's it's not an option. Um, it's the the truth. And if we treat it like just another lifestyle choice. Um, the danger becomes that people start thinking about it as a lifestyle choice. And when it is a lifestyle choice, the question for someone who's not a Christian is not, did Christ really rise from the dead for my sins? The question is, will this make my life more pleasant? Is this conducive? Is this going to fit who I imagine myself to be? And frankly, the church does not want to go down that road because the world is much better at appealing to people's desires than the church is. The church demands self-sacrifice. That's that doesn't sell very well. So um, that's that's my concern. Okay. So Alan, in the in the book, you kind of lay out in the first half 
all of this sort of thing? Like what, what is happening in this distracted age? What is it preventing us from? And then you shift toward talking to us about basically spiritual habits. Like mm-hmm. what could we mm-hmm. replace these things with or, or what, uh, what would be beneficial to us yeah. as followers of Christ? So there were, there were two of them that JR and I wanted to talk with you a little about. Uh, and the first was silence, yeah. which is a spiritual practice, at least in our tradition, JR and I, uh, that our churches didn't emphasize it much. Yeah. So you can, can you talk a little bit about silence and what this looks like and why it's so important? Yeah, so I, this is also something that I have certainly not grown up with, um, and I don't think most Americans, uh, most denominations or churches um, teach it. Um, and and I don't even, um, so I'm Presbyterian, it's not a particular church practice or discipline that I've been taught and and I would almost say that it's not necessarily, it doesn't necessarily, in my mind, need to be a spiritual practice so much as a human practice, whereas I would say prayer does, is a spiritual discipline. I think everyone needs, all humans need to have silence as part of their practice uh, uh, for living full lives. Uh, because it's only in silence that we allow our, our our imaginations and our thoughts to to wander and to explore, and it's only then that we can allow um, these uh, suppressed fears and anxieties and thoughts and worries to surface, so that we can um, address them. Otherwise, we're sort of just wandering through our lives in in ignorance of our own. Um, our own mind, and that's a that's a terrifying place to be. So I know that that uh, you know there there you know can be more formal spiritual practices of silence, but but the way I would I would frame it is 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 just more of a um, sort of basic human flourishing requires mental time of of of, of silence. I found I don't know I I find silence very very challenging. I know I'm not the only one, but <laughs> yes. Uh, and it's uh, so I'm a pastor, yeah. and this is something we encourage our congregants to do. But man, it is just it's so uh, it's so difficult to convince people that just being silent for a while is good for us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What do you ask your congregants to do? Like, what does it? What does that look look like? Because uh, quiet through the whole sermon. <laughs> <laughs> too much. That's too hard. Too much. Uh, no. Uh, so we'll challenge them sometimes to spend um, either in a like a particular room of their house, uh, or in, maybe even like in their backyard or something. Just spend five minutes in silence. Mm-hmm. Um, I will also. Uh, I would say in the past year or so, I've been encouraging uh, meditation more specifically. Mm-hmm. So we'll give them a particular scripture verse or a particular prayer mm-hmm. to just sort of repeat for five to ten minutes in silence. Mm-hmm. And we usually say, you know, start with five minutes for a week or two and then, you know, bump it up. Mm-hmm. Um, but, yeah, it's just, again, I, I think it's I think it's one of those things that people think, I don't know, man, like if I get around to it. And who has, you know, who just has even five minutes of downtime in their day, you know, we've, we've got notifications to check. <laughs> right. Yeah. And that's the scandal is that we do have 
mean, we live in a society where we have a lot of free time. Most of us in the West um, do actually have quite a bit of space, but it feels like we are absolutely overwhelmed. Part of the anxiety we get when we are silent is, uh, I think, a guilt that we're not working, that, you know, I should really be doing something right now. Mm -hmm. I have, you know, I have stuff I need to do, and this is not doing anything. This is sort of just wasting time. And what, yeah, and the hilarious thing about this is if I sit down to watch a TV show on Netflix, then I don't, I feel like I'm doing something, right, which is absurd, I'm unwinding, man. I'm relaxing. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Yeah. uh, I had a I had a friend and and coworker that we would travel together a lot, and we would go on airplanes, and she would bring one magazine, no matter how long the flight was, and she would flip through it for maybe ten minutes, and then she would just sit there the rest of the flight. And sometimes we would talk, you know, and other times she would just be sitting, and I was like, "What are you doing? Like, Mm. what what could you possibly be doing for two hours?" (laughs) just sitting there. And she's like, I'm yeah. thinking, I'm, I'm working through the day and just reflecting and meditating. I was like, that is amazing. A constantly yeah. amazing. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think it, it impacts a lot of other things. Like the fact that uh, in traffic or God forbid you have to go to Costco on a weekend, uh, that the person in front of you slows you down by five seconds and you're like, oh, what do you really need that many, you know, gigantic things of cereal? Like, get out of my way. Yeah, uh, it is also because we're m- missing this practice, this ability to have any sort of patience in anything. Yeah, yeah, it's hard. It's hard, and and it is a it is a practice. It is habits, and it get it get it gets easier. And it's something that I think uh, we are we are definitely swimming upstream. It's not. Um, the rest of our society, and I think our, our, our sinful hearts are pushing us the other direction. So it's, it's hard work, uh, and it's not something I have, I have mastered. In writing this book, I am not putting myself out there as the, like, the guru who's got like, all this figured out. Um, trying to be faithful and, and describing problems that I see and offering some ways forward, but I'm not. I, I mean, I just think anyone who's honest with themselves has to admit that this is an ongoing thing. You you have to put in the work to to grow to the place where you're comfortable being silent and 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 having certain practices that are um, countercultural. Frankly, I uh, I've been telling my leadership team recently that I think that a church full of congregants, like a body. Uh, particularly in the suburbs where we are that that took the practice of sabbath really seriously would be world-changing oh my gosh yes Um, and so i wonder uh if you could talk just just briefly about what some of the ways you've imagined sabbath in our 21st century uh distracted culture sabbath is just so um i hate the word radical because it has all these you know kind of it, it almost becomes worn out but surfer connotations yeah that's right any <laughs> surfer connotations but it is it is i mean it's kind of absurd it's kind of ridiculous don't work don't shop um spend time uh in the word in prayer and in community uh and in in service to others shouldn't you be trying to get ahead and and and, and doing things 
um, the Sabbath has so much to teach us. It's it's very hard for me to practice uh, in part because um, a teaching, really any kind of teaching job, tends to it your work absolutely spills over to after hours. You always take work home. Um, and so it's something I've been fighting since grad school to enact, but it's also, it's a kind of act of faith, right? So if you take the step and you decide, I'm not going to do any, um, work related activities today, it's Sunday. Um, you have to have this faith that God is going to provide, that the world is not going to crumble, that you're not going to lose your job, that you're not going to uh, become hopelessly behind. Um, um, and, and I think, you know, uh, choosing not to shop um, on Sunday is a, a great way of, of, of saying the market, the marketplace, consumerism, that's not where we build our identity. That's not the where we find life and vitality and hope and fullness. It's a thing we do, and it's not not necessarily a bad thing, um, shopping, but um, but it's not where we find our our hope. And um, so, I I absolutely believe that yeah, practicing the Sabbath can have all these. Well, one last thing is that. It suggests that time has a transcendent dimension to it, that, that there are certain times and periods that um, relate to or connected to directly to transcendent truths like um, God resting on the seventh day. Um, and, and that is a way of reminding ourselves that this busy world, which sees the calendar as just a way to quantify time and measure it and conquer it and fill it, that perspective, which is a fundamentally secular perspective, is not true. That there's this other conception of time that comes from outside of our secular world, outside of this material world, that imposes itself upon us and says, actually, um, there's a God and he ordered the world in a certain way. He created the world in a certain way. And by taking a Sabbath rest, we are remembering the creation and therefore his provision. And also we're looking forward to the ultimate Sabbath rest, which we're already participating in, but it's not yet come in fullness. Um, and so there's just a rich reminders, which is what we need that this, that this material world is not all that there is. Because if we don't have those reminders, we will allow ourselves to be sort of, you know, gaslighted, frankly, into thinking that this material world is all that there is. Alan, thank you. I, that, that's so insightful uh, and gives a lot to reflect on in our next moment of silence. Um, can you tell us, uh, we need to wrap up, we're about out of time because we have not controlled or tamed it, um, where if we wanted to appropriately, not in a distracted way, connect with you online, uh, what, what are some of the places our audience can find you? So I am on Twitter at uh, the Alan Noble, A-L-A-N-N-O-B-L-E. Um, that's a good place to find me. Um, I think I'm on Facebook at O Allen Noble. 
Um, those are great places to find me. Uh, you can find the website that I'm uh, editor-in-chief of, christandpopculture.com. Those are probably, yeah, those are probably the best places. Great. And your, Excellent. And your book is Disruptive Witness, which comes out July 17th, which is my yeah. birthday because it's a gift from Alan to you <laughs> for my birthday. A gift, yes. a kind of gift that you'll want to pay for. To receive. That's right. The best kind of gift. Yeah. Yes. There's worth to it. And and it is uh, it is available for pre-order now. So yes. uh, even though this is uh, a couple months before the book comes out, uh, you can go pre-order it and then have a nice little surprise you know on what? Matt's birthday. Yes. Give future self a surprise. <laughs> Buy it today. And then on July 17th, when you get a little package at home and you open it, you're like, what's this? That'll be nice. You'll be like, thanks, past me. Yeah. Yeah. I wish past me would do a lot more for me. Presently. I know. Be more thoughtful right? past me. Stop not doing the dishes. Take a nap. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Grade some papers already. Ugh. I mean, really? Past me is the worst. <laughs> uh, well, Alan, before you go, would you join us in our pop culture pick of the week? Yes. I want you go last so you have time to... To reflect. Okay, good. No, 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 yeah, yeah. So, uh, Matt, what do you got for us? Okay, speaking of books that have not yet released, uh, JR and I have gotten a little secret look at a fantasy novel written by a Native American woman named Rebecca Roanhorse uh, called Trail of Lightning. It takes place on a Navajo reservation post-apocalypse, and Ooh. it's great. It's so fun. Uh, you're really going to enjoy it. Rebecca's going to be joining us on the show uh, this summer, right before the book comes out. Uh, but you might as well just get ready. You know, future you might want Disruptive Witness as well as Trail of Lightning. So that's one to check out. You'll be hearing more about it in the in the weeks to come. Yeah, if you've ever read uh, any of Neil Gaiman's American Gods or Anansi Boys, this has a similar flavor in that like the Navajo gods and heroes and monsters have all returned. Wow. And so it's it's like negotiating a post-apocalyptic world where all of these uh, ancient forces have come back. It's it's fascinating. And the, the main character is a monster killer. So it's kind of it's yeah. it's got a plot that moves, it's fun. You'll like it. Uh, my pick is a book that actually is out. Uh, it's Action Comics number 1000. Uh, this is the 80th year of Superman, and this is uh, the longest-running, continuously published comic. It's the first comic ever to reach 1,000 issues, and it's great. It's like everything you've ever loved about Superman. Uh, it proves yet again how morally bankrupt the DC Cinematic Universe <laughs> is. Uh, and it's basically... Uh, it's basically a bunch of very short Superman stories written by people like Paul Denny, Tom King, Scott Snyder, um, uh, Neil Adams does some art for it. Brian Michael Bendis, who just came over to DC from a uh, long tenure at Marvel, uh, has the final story where a huge revelation is made about Superman's origins that change a lot of stuff. Uh, I guess my only uh, my only complaint with the issue is that there are not very many authors of color or female authors doing their takes on Superman. Uh, like Gene Yang didn't get uh, get a story in there, even uh, former writer. So I would have I would have just been interested in some of those stories also, uh, particularly because it's like 80 pages long. So, I mean, it's, they did a lot, um, but there's some great stuff in there. Uh, Tom Keynes is probably my favorite, but he's just amazing. So, uh, anyway, action comics, number 1000, a historic issue. It's, uh, in your local comic shop now. So, uh, check it out. 
Scott Snyder. Oh yeah, it's, it's, he did the Batman uh, Batman series. Is that right? Yes. Yep. Yeah. So one time he retweeted something I tweeted, and I feel like very gosh. I was because um, I compared the Court of Owls. There's this great Court of Owls uh, image with uh, an image of the Trump children. Like standing all together, <laughs> yes. and they look they look exactly alike. I'll try to find it and and tweet it at you because it it was like, you know, sometimes you say something and you're like, this is it, this is brilliant, but nobody's going to pay attention. And then when like the creator of this, you know, does, I just felt like that's it. I'm, I can retire from Twitter now. Yeah, I, I, saw that. I feel like you were holding out on us when you said Star Wars conference for your geek cred. Well, I forgot about that, you know? <laughs> Honestly, I forgot. I mean, when I think about Greek geek credentials, like, I, I feel like Star Wars convention is, like, that's pretty legit. Um, no, so I would say I am, I'm currently reading uh, the complete vision, the complete series. Yes. I so have, good. You know, every once in a while, I, I love reading comics now. I never read comics before, but now that like they'll go on sale uh, for digital copies. And I know as a literature person, I should love books and I do love books, but it's so like, I can afford comics to read them on my iPad. Whereas <laughs> just frankly, I couldn't, I just couldn't buy a $27 hardback version of vision, the complete series. Whereas I got it on sale for like $3 and I'm, this is hundreds of pages and it's just it's an awesome it's just a great story so it's one of the best comics the last five years no question so good i love it uh well our guest again today has been alan noble uh the book is disruptive witness speaking truth in a distracted age Uh, alan thanks again for joining us it's been such an honor thank you very much for having me uh this has been soryman episode 192 Uh, We'll be back next week with another great episode. Until then, thank you for engaging us. Uh, Please reach out to Alan. Let him know you enjoyed having him on the show. Take care of each other and take care of yourselves. This is a song about the three-story men. Life is a story we're all living in. So now that you know the story Sit back and listen to the three stories. Sometimes there's a man. Rather, sometimes there's some men. And I'm talking about the story men here. And I know what you're thinking. Those are some tall fellers. I don't know if that's three stories separately or three combined. Well, we're missing the point. Sometimes there's some men. And you want to know what these hombres are about? Well, I won't say they're heroes. They're just the men who are right for their time and place. These men, uh... Shoot, I lost my place. Well, I've probably introduced them enough. So just relax for a spell and bend your ear their way.